All right, well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. We'd love for you to follow along with us as we uh, really go through chapters 8 and 9 today. Um, and we'll be looking at large portions of both chapters. I uh, won't be able to read them both in their entirety, but as you'll see, we'll, we're going to work our way through them. Uh, but I want to start with a question. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? This was the famous line spoken by Al Michaels, the legendary sports broadcaster, after the U.S. hockey team beat Russia in the 1980 Olympics. It would be a game that would be affectionately referred to ever since as Miracle on Ice. The story uh, behind the feature film that came out, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, called Miracle. And this shows that most, most of which we call miracles in our day today are not, in fact, miracles. In common language, people use miracle as, as a synonym for the improbable, for the surprising, like a student that says, it is a miracle that I passed that final exam without studying. And what happens is when we use the word miracle for things that are not, in fact, miracles, it, watered down, it waters down the times when there are actual miracles. So the 1980 victory over the Soviets, that was improbable. That was highly unlikely. It was a major upset, but not a miracle. Which begs the question then, what is a miracle? And... The answer can be more difficult to define than you may think. Uh, you might, kind of grappling for words, just say, well, it's a, it, it's a happening that just can't be explained by science. And maybe that's partially true, but just because we can't explain something scientifically doesn't mean that there isn't a scientific reason that we just have not discovered yet. The reality is you cannot define or even believe in miracles without belief in the supernatural. To say, I believe in miracles, is to believe in some form of higher power who is actively engaged in all of creation. So here's my biblical definition of miracle. A direct act of divine intervention in which God overrides his creation in order to bring about a certain result that accomplishes his purposes. In short, miracles confirm the truth and power of God's Word. And miracles are always ultimately good in that they are direct acts of God and they accomplish His purposes, which are always good and right. But the recipients of miracles wouldn't always necessarily see them as good in the moment. Which brings us to the ten plagues. The famous signs and wonders that God inflicts upon the nation of Egypt as a result of Pharaoh's hardened heart and, and his refusal to let God's people go. Last week, we dipped our toes in the water, no pun intended, when we saw the first plague of the Nile River turning to blood. And this morning, in chapters 8 and 9, we are going to go through the next six plagues. And we're going to make observations as we go. We're going to kind of connect the dots as to understanding why these plagues that were enacted 4,000 years ago actually have a stunningly relevant impact to us today. So you can follow along 
with me as I read Exodus chapter 8. We'll start with the first eight verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that come up that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Plague number two is the frogs. We see uh, that to start this chapter, God's command to Pharaoh through uh, Moses and Aaron is unchanged. Let my people go that they might serve me. And that's worth repeating because the Bible keeps repeating it over and over again that God is not changing his mind here. He's not shifting his desires. He's not kind of changing his character and his plan in order to fit Pharaoh or to make it more feasible. He seeks to see his people freed for the purpose of serving him. This is why God saves. He saves so that his people can serve, worship, and glorify his name. In verse 2, we see the word that is translated plague for the first time. It is a large-scale, miraculous sign. And Moses warns Pharaoh of this plague, and Pharaoh gives us no response that we read. So then God tells Pharaoh, God tells Pharaoh to tell Aaron, stretch out that staff over the water and send the frogs um, so why frogs here? Um, why not crocodiles from the Nile? Why not large spiders? Why not something that's more terrifying? Why frogs? Mentioned this last week that, that the plagues were, were not random. They, they were not necessarily an attack on the Egyptian people, but they were an attack on the Egyptian gods. An attack on the gods to expose them as powerless to the Egyptian people. And the polytheistic culture of Egypt had um, these kind of three categories for all their gods. Three categories. Um, water, land, and sky. The first two plagues, the river of blood and now frogs, attack the gods of the water. The next four attack the gods of the land and the final four will attack the gods of the sky. So God sends a plague of frogs because of the Egyptian goddess Hecht, H-E-K-T. This goddess had a head of a woman, but the body of a frog. And so because of this, frogs were sacred in Egypt and they could not be killed. They were a source of worship, of, of sacred worship. And so God is almost mocking this culture-wide practice by saying, you want frogs, Egypt? Here you go. It reminds me of, uh, as a child, I remember always hearing um, 
that the praying mantis was this endangered species, and it was illegal to kill them. So if you saw one on your deck or in your house, it would be illegal to kill them. You have to find a way to usher them outside or free them without hurting it. And I've come to find that that's actually not true. Not saying you should go start killing praying mantises, but that uh, you should still relocate and release, but you won't go to jail if you do kill one. But God sends the very animal from the Nile that everyone in Egypt cannot kill. And he sends them in such abundance that they end up everywhere. It's interesting, you know, frogs are not a dangerous animal, but they are a source of such annoyance that, and, and, and it would be so gross if you found them in your home and in your bed and your most kind of private places that they just got everywhere. I mean, consider Pharaoh even, probably the most protected, the most secure, the most powerful person of Egypt, and he can't even escape them. Moses says, Pharaoh, they're going to come up to your house. They're going to get into your bedroom. And then for the third time, we read that the magicians did the same. That they too brought frogs up out of the Nile and onto the land of Egypt. And and again, I, I just don't really have an issue with this, that even if they did figure out how to Uh, conjure up their secret arts to do this because, again, just like we saw twice last week with, with, with the snakes and then with the Nile, that they only, in their secret arts, further the glory of God. They, they cannot reverse this plague. They cannot send the frogs back into the Nile. They can only mimic it. Satan, again, he's a knockoff artist. He's not an innovator. They are only furthering God's glory. And Pharaoh reacts differently now. Pharaoh, we see for the first time in the book of Exodus, enters panic mode. Because when the river turned to the Nile in the first plague, he just turned his back and his heart was hardened and he went back into his home. But now he goes back into his home and he's got frogs in his bed. So he summons Moses and he summons Aaron and he begs them, please pray to the Lord to take the frogs away and I will let the people go. So how about that Pharaoh sharing a prayer request? And Moses jumps at this. He must have thought in the moment, oh man, this is it. It's going to happen. Pharaoh just committed to let God's people go. And so the next day he intercedes He asked the Lord to take the frogs away. And sure enough, the Lord takes them away. That proves all the more that this plague is a miracle. It was not just some natural occurrence. Because in a moment, they're gone. They either jump back into the Nile or they die where they are. And Pharaoh, seeing that they are dead and gone, immediately goes back on his word. And exposes that he did not seek to be free from sin. He just wanted to be free from the consequences of sin. Once the situation improved, once he was out of his bind, he reneges on his end of the bargain. He hardens his own heart. He would not let the people go. And this will be the pattern that we will continue to see Pharaoh panicking. 
promising to God, I'll do anything if you just get me through this situation. The situation passes, and then he goes, nah, never mind. It's plague number two. Let's keep going. We're going to jump down to verse 16 of chapter 8 and read through verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Plague number three, the gnats. Um, One noticeable difference of this plague, right off the bat, Pharaoh gets no warning this time. God just immediately has Moses tell Aaron, strike the dust of the earth. Um, If you're following along with the ESV translation, it says gnats. Uh, The original Hebrew word is vague as to kind of what kind of small insect this is. If you grew up with the KJV version, you might remember this plague being referred to as lice. But either way, small insects, gnats, covered man and beast. This third plague is the first one of the land. It's a, it's a, direct, a direct attack on the earth god named Geb, G-E-B, that they had in Egypt. And this God was the one who claimed authority over all the soil of the earth. And and, and the wording is is vivid, right? The the dust of the earth is struck and all the dust becomes gnats in all the land. Like, I don't think we can even fathom what that would be like. But it had to be unbelievably powerful and terrible because we're told, behold, the magicians tried to produce them and they couldn't. They can mimic the snakes. They can mimic the river turning to blood. They can mimic the frogs. But now they wave the white flag. To them, this is unexplainable how this could happen. And the magicians go to Pharaoh and they say simply, this is the finger of God. It's here that the magicians get exposed, and through them, Satan gets exposed. We have to realize that Satan has power. He has real power, but it's limited. He can mimic, but he can't innovate. He can hate, but he can't love. He can destroy, but he cannot redeem. And even his knockoff ability to mimic God has limits. There's miracles he can't control. And so the white flag is up. This is the finger of God. This is no indication that the magicians now became believers. This is not a saving confession to the Lord. It is a bitter acknowledgement They acknowledge, okay, okay, this is the real deal. This is God. But but they hate him for it. 
I often say that Satan knows the doctrine of God better than the smartest theologians that have ever lived. Because knowledge alone does nothing to save. Knowledge alone will get you nowhere. Acknowledgement alone does not produce worship. You see, Satan knows God. The magicians know about God. But they hate him for it. And then we get to plague number four. And it's the flies. Plague number four, the flies. The the pattern is, is mostly the same as you begin to read that portion of chapter 8, but there's, but there's one key difference which we'll get to in a moment. The, the Lord tells Moses to again command Pharaoh that he should let his people go and warn him what will happen if he does not listen. So now there's a warning once again, and he says there's a fourth plague of flies that will come all over the land. A direct attack on the Egyptian god Beelzebub who Luke talks about in the New Testament. And it, it's, a, it's a God that literally means Lord of the flies. And He has the authority to protect the land. So once again, a miracle enacted by God. A direct act of intervention upon His creation. But one key difference with the flies. I want to read it. Verses 22 and 23. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. So if up to this point you may have thought, well, the first three plagues doesn't they didn't necessarily have to be miracles. There could have surely been scientific explanations for the river turning red or for an abundance of frogs in that season and for an abundance of gnats in that season. But now there is no doubt that these are miraculous wonders. Because not only is a divine act of God sending these flies, they are geographically based so that the Hebrew people in the land of Goshen will not suffer this time. The first three plagues, the Egyptian people suffered alongside the Egyptian people. But now in plague number four, there is a separation. The flies will not touch the Israelites, will not go to where they dwell. And there will be division between God's people and Pharaoh's people. A good question worth being reminded of here. Um, Why why does God protect Israel? Why is He saving the Hebrew people from slavery? Why is He bringing them out of that land? Have they done anything in themselves to earn that freedom, to impress God, to be really holy and special? Are they really good, moral people while the Egyptians are really bad? No. No. There is no indication of that being the case. In fact, what we have seen and will continue to see in Exodus, Israel, they got some issues, man. Like they got some warts. They got some blind spots. So, so why then? Why does God spare them from the flies? Why does He spare them at all? Why will He eventually save them? And the answer 
It's because he chose to. Because they're his people. God saves them because of his grace. Book of Deuteronomy, a couple books later, years down the road after the Exodus, Moses is speaking to the entire nation. He says this, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's a fascinating couple of verses. Did, did, did you see it? He says, he goes, it's not because you're the biggest in numbers. It's not because you're the most powerful. It's not because you're the most moral nation that the Lord chose you and loves you. You know why he loves you, Israel? Because he loves you. Because he made a promise. Because you're his people. That God's people are marked out. There is a dividing line And in the Old Testament, it was a literal border where Israel and the Hebrew people dwelled. But it's a reminder for us today that God always puts division between His people and the world. And the ultimate dividing line of Scripture is not a city border. It's not a country border. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross separates the world into two groups. Those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. And so be reminded, be encouraged, Christian, that one is not a Christian because they're good or because they earn God's love or because they deserve it. People are Christians because of the cross. Because sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, this fifth plague flies. Excuse me, fourth plague. It exposes Pharaoh. He is completely undone by the flies. And you can't help but notice the irony here, right? Here we have the leader of the most powerful kingdom in the ancient world. We have a leader who is powerful enough to subdue an entire nation as slaves. And yet, he is powerless against flies. You know, in this sermon, I have been purposely resisting parallels between the ancient plagues and the coronavirus that has completely taken over here in 2020 and what we're facing today because there is slippery ground there to try and connect the dots and try and make straight lines from the plagues to the coronavirus. But consider just this connection, that here in the modern world, all the feats that we have accomplished, all the technological advances we have seen how powerful our armies are and our weapons are and our economy is, how intricate, how postmodern it is. And yet, we're exposed by a microscopic virus that no one can see and yet is doing havoc 
and wreaking havoc across our entire culture. It is a reminder that we are a limited people and we are far less impressive than we often think. And Pharaoh calls in Moses and he wants these flies out and he says, okay, you can do your sacrifice, but it has to be here. You can't go into the wilderness. You can do your sacrifice like you asked. You can have your break, but you got to do it here in the land. Stay where we can see you. And Moses, to his credit, he resists this. He does not compromise on God's command. He doesn't say like, okay, deal, like a master negotiator where we can kind of try to meet in the middle. Let's make a deal, Pharaoh. He does not compromise. And so just a side note application for us, again, a reminder that obedience to God's word cannot be negotiated. There is no right way to not fully obey God's command. And I think we find ourselves in these situations more often than we realize where we try to negotiate with sin, where we try to compromise and justify it to ourselves. Uncomfortably, we can think about um, a husband or wife who says, hey, I will be faithful to my spouse and I will not have an affair and cheat on my spouse, but I will harbor a private pornography habit. I know it's not great. I know it's not fully obedient, but it will actually keep me from physically cheating. It's not obedience. You might say, hey, I would never use immoral, ethical practices at work to make extra money. But I'm not going to report all my income on my taxes. It's not obedience. God's word cannot be negotiated. So Moses says... No deal. The Egyptians would stone us if they, if they saw us worshiping our God. God said, let my people go. That's the command. We must leave. Let us go. And so Pharaoh, he's, he's panicked. He's desperate. He says, okay, you can go. Just don't go far, but yes, you can go. And Moses says back to him, okay, now don't cheat on me. Don't cheat on me like you did last time. And then he prays, and God relents, and the flies disappear. But the pattern continues. Pharaoh sees the trouble pass and says, no. And his heart is hardened again. Again, his motivation is to be free from consequences, not free from sin. The next two plagues I'm just going to very briefly address due to time. Plague number five, it's, it's the plague of the livestock. This one comes with the same command and same warning. Let my people go that they might serve me. And then the warning, if you don't, I will put a severe plague upon your livestock that is in the field. The Egyptian livestock will die. Israel's livestock will live. This is another attack on an Egyptian god like the others. Egypt worships the bull. It was a sacred animal to them through the god um, Bukes. If I'm pronouncing that right, B-U-C-H-S. It's the god of fertility. And he's exposed as powerless against this immediate strike. This was not a prolonged illness that began in 
Some of the livestock and spread over months. It was one day a miraculous act, divine act by God, where the livestock that were in the fields are dead. And Pharaoh looks into it. This is the one difference of this plague. He sends someone to go confirm that, that none of the Israeli livestock died. It's confirmed. Right? He's looking for a reason to disbelieve. And yet his heart is so hardened. He sees that it's true as God had said. And he still won't believe. Against all reason, against all odds, against all evidence provided, he will not let the people go. It's a reminder that you can provide someone a perfect answer to every objection they have to God. And they can hear it, and they can say, no, still don't believe. It's the power of a hardened heart. That's plague number five. And then plague number six is the boils. This plague is unique and that is a direct affliction upon people. It's not an animal coming onto their skin like the gnats or the flies. It is boils that appear from within. And then our boys, the magicians, returned onto the scene. We don't know where they went for the last couple of plagues. They disappeared. They were embarrassed. And now they're back. But we again see they cannot mimic this miracle or even try to because we're told they can't even stand up before Moses. Once again, the Israelites are spared from the boils. Once again, Pharaoh is hardened, refusing to listen to Moses and Aaron. And that brings us to our final plague for today. Plague number seven. Follow along as I read Exodus 9, verses 13 to 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Plague number seven, the storm. It's the first of the final four plagues that will go from the land to the sky. Moses speaks to Pharaoh on the Lord's behalf, again commanding him, let my people go that they might serve me. But then he ratchets it up in verse 14. Do you notice he said, for this time, I will send all my plagues upon you. Pharaoh, those first six were JV. These are varsity. These last four are going to be brutal. And the warning comes about a storm with such a force that Egypt has never seen. 
a direct attack like the others on an Egyptian god, this one, Shu, S-H-U, the god of the atmosphere. And this time, God gives very, a very tangible test to Pharaoh. He says, verse 18, get all the livestock that are in the field back into the barns. You might be thinking at this point, wait a minute, what about plague number five? I thought all the livestock were dead. Upon a closer read, you go back to first to the fifth plague, and he said that all the livestock that are currently in the field, and also says all kinds of livestock, horses, camels, donkeys, herds, so not all in its totality, but all different kinds that are in the field. But those remaining, if they're not sheltered, they're going to die in this storm. And while Pharaoh's heart remains hardened, some of his servants who catch wind of this latest warning, they fear the word of the Lord, and they break rank with Pharaoh. And they did as the Lord commanded, and they bring their livestock indoors. But others did not. And this storm comes, verse 24, just as the Lord said it would, a storm that had never been seen in all the land of Egypt. Everywhere except, once again, the land where the Israelites dwelled. And it leads to the final passage that we will read this morning. Because this plague is so terrible, it leads to a confession. Follow along, Exodus 9, verses 27 through 30. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that, the, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. This is the third time Pharaoh pleads for the ending of a plague. And it appears on the surface to be his most genuine plea. For he confesses, I have sinned. The Lord is right. I am wrong. And you might be thinking at this point, whoa, did Pharaoh just become a believer? He just confessed his sin. He just acknowledged the Lord's power. I think he's a believer. But not so fast. Upon closer examination, there are signs that this is a false confession. Not a real one. And it's here, church, that we should pay close attention. What is the difference between a false convert and a true one? What is the difference between someone pretending to be a Christian and a real Christian? It's still one of the most important questions we face today. First, Pharaoh does not confess to God. He confesses to Moses. There's no plea before the Lord. There's no direct cry out to Him. There's no confession to the one who He sinned against. He says to Moses, hey, plead for me. 
hey, you speak to him. I don't want to make light of the situation, but it does remind me of like a, a, in our home when my three-year-old daughter uh, you know, yells at her brother or pushes her baby sister at some point and we tell her she's got to go to timeout and then, and then after timeout she has to apologize. And, and she will often kind of uh, scrunch up her face and cross her arms and say, you do it. You, you talk to him for me. And we'll have to tell her, Brindley, it's not an apology acknowledging that you did something is not the same as confessing it. Pharaoh did not confess to the Lord. It's the first indication that something's amiss here. But secondly, Pharaoh only confesses a sin. He does not confess to be a sinner. Verse 27, he said, This time I have sinned. This one time. Okay, I was wrong. Okay, the Lord got one on me. He is right. It's not a saving confession. Think about it. We don't come to the Lord because we've lied once. We come because we're liars. We don't come to the Lord because we've stolen. We come because we're greedy. You see, we don't just sin We are sinners in need of a Savior. And it's not a certain behavior that we have wrong. It's our personhood. It's our nature that is in need of saving. And then third indication, and most obviously, Pharaoh confessed, but he did not repent. And there's a difference You see, repentance is a confession of sin and a turning from that sin. To repent literally means to turn. When someone repents, they turn from sin and they turn toward God. It's a a change of worship. It's a reorientation of worship. It's it's putting God on the throne. It's, it's, It's repentance that brings salvation, not just acknowledging a confession. We know Moses, we know Pharaoh, excuse me, did not repent. And Moses saw it coming. And then it ended up happening. Verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. It's a false confession. He never confessed to God. He never confessed himself as a sinner And he never repented, as evidenced by zero behavioral change after the fact. These are the signs of a false conversion. And he is still hardened even after seeing seven miracles right before his eyes in succession. A couple of thousand years later, the Apostle Paul articulated Pharaoh's problem in this way, in a letter to a church in the city of Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
You see, worldly grief wants to be free from the consequences of sin. Godly grief wants to be free from sin through a Savior. Pharaoh just wanted to be free from the consequences. And it's not possible. Worldly grief never equates to joy. Worldly grief stands as an enemy to God, a God who reveals himself and makes his power known through miracles. You know, as we close, we think about the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus came, he performed miracles over and over and over again, and he did it in order to serve and to help others in an embodied ministry of healing. But primarily, he did miracles to prove that he is the one true God. And the most important miracle isn't the ones he did. It's the miracle he received. The resurrection from the dead. So do you believe in miracles? I do. Because I believe in the resurrection. And I believe that God let his people go from sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Where our sin has been paid for. Where his name was vindicated by conquering the grave so that all may know that he is the Lord. And for those who repent of trying to be their own God, and those who turn to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, will join in with the resurrection. And those in Christ will never experience a second death. This is the finger of God. This is Yahweh, the great I Am. He makes a way. He roots out fear. He draws us near to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is wholly true that every story of a miracle in it is true, that you divinely act and intervene in the midst of your creation to bring about your purposes, Lord. And we thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for Jesus saying in his resurrection, let my people go that they may serve me. Father, help us to live in such a way that glorifies your name, that lives in response to a great salvation that you have purchased. And Father, let, let it lead us in a life that is without fear, but full confidence in you and who you are. In, your name, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.